If any of you were not here last week, I added this particular slide here um, as an overview of kind of a key issue that defines the church. And so I'm just going to quick show that again. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction <clears throat> is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And that's an overview of what Paul expects Christian teaching in the church to be producing by God's grace. It's certainly the goal of his teaching. And then later in 2 Timothy in chapter 2, it says, now flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And so if the goal and the result of the gospel and those gathered about the gospel isn't calling on the Lord with a pure heart, you don't really have the church because the church consists of those who are the saints, as you see at the uh, salutation in, in uh, a lot of the epistles to the saints who are wherever they may dwell. Saints are sanctified ones. The pure heart is the sanctified heart. It's from the root of the word sanctified. Sanctification, in this sense, positional sanctification, is a work of grace, not an achievement of human works. So the, that means this is my claim, and it can be judged. But my claim is this implies that the church that developed throughout history uh, that becomes the institutional church and Christendom in general is not actually the church. And that the billions that are supposedly Christian, hardly any fit the definition of Christian. Only a few here and there. In fact, you may find thousands of people in an organization and we can't see the heart, only God can. But given the fact that the gospel is not preached, the word of God is not taught, the things that would cause people to see the need for sanctification, for cleansing, and for the forgiveness of sins and all these things are not even mentioned, but simply religious ritual or whatever else, you can't expect that to be the church. And by um, what we've seen in preaching and teaching, and what some of you have seen as you were converted, wherever you may have been from, there may be a handful of people in any large church that are actually born of God. And that's not necessarily a new idea. People have pointed that out for a long time. But my claim is the goal of our instruction is not to create a new institution that only the electorian or the redeemed or the sanctified, however you want to describe it, and make sure that goes on into perpetuity. Because within a few generations, it'll just be like the ones that you came out of. Because Christianity isn't spread through natural generation, but through supernatural regeneration. And it's only supernatural regeneration that creates what Paul calls the goal of his instruction, love from a pure heart. That's a work of God by the Spirit. And um, that's who we gather with. And so, therefore, the church is not an institution, but it's an organism. And by the organism, we're using the same analogy Paul does with his analogy of the head and the body. The organic connection between the body to the head is... Uh, implies that every member of the body is alive, is part of the body, and contributes to the body, and is necessary. Now, we'll get into that 1 Corinthians 12. So what does that mean? Well, that doesn't mean Christians don't have children and that, that no children of Christians are Christian because many, many times they are. But that God makes Christians, not humans. But a human should provide the means that God uses to make Christians, which is the word of God's purely taught, gospel preached, and we're looking for the same goal of Paul is. 
love from a pure heart, good conscience. How do you get your conscience cleansed? Doing more good things than bad things? By that definition, everybody has one because they redefine what a good thing and a bad thing is. So you look a little better to, well, I'm better than Hitler. I can't be all that bad. So that's kind of how humans do it. But the, the pure heart is cleansed by Jesus' blood and washed clean with pure water by the washing of the water of the word. And uh, the old person that was in slavery in Egypt is buried in baptism, so to speak. And that's kind of what I talked about last week. And so what does that mean? Well, don't put all your time and effort into creating self-perpetuating institutions. You're wasting your money. You're, doing, you're trying to do something that cannot be done. It'll end up, no matter, you can put every Loctite poison pill, get the best lawyers, write it all up. This will happen, or this will happen, or this will happen. If anybody departs from whatever, and whatever they might depart from is often a quirk of the group, and they may find a biblical reason to depart, and then you'll end up with a little brick building set on a massive lot with a few people over 90 going to it. Those things exist, by the way. And that's all they could do, because the institution can't be changed, and the institution couldn't self-perpetuate, and it's gone. But if you believe the organic view of the church, nobody can kill it, not even the Communist Party. Okay? Because it'll just go into a basement. It'll go here. The, and that's that book, The Torch of the Testament. It'll always be alive because God makes it alive. It doesn't mean we're disorganized. It doesn't mean we never have a program or a plan or when we're going to meet or where we're going to meet. But it means that we don't think that way. And not thinking that way will help the elders and pastors function better. Because I remember thinking when we just couldn't pay the bills and there's not enough people and too big of a building and too many problems and it was hopeless, it was impossible. How can I do this? How can I do this? I found an old uh, letter I'd sent to the elders in 1996 and it was basically that condition. We couldn't pay for anything. Massive building in a bad neighborhood with hardly anybody coming. You can't pay the bills. It's a horrible situation. The Lord helped us. But if it's organic... Nobody's ever actually lost. They've just changed locations. And it's not the end of the world if somebody is coming to the group we're part of and they're part of the headship of Christ and they go somewhere else. If they're indeed actively serving the Lord, as it happened in Acts, they went different places. Timothy went different places. Nothing's lost. And God isn't expecting us to use the gifts he doesn't give us, he expects us to use the ones he does. And if, so if there are certain things we don't have because somebody moved along to somewhere else or went on a mission field or whatever, I don't have to ruminate over that. We do what we can with who the Lord gave us in our little situation. Is that It's free. It's liberating. But then in that context, you care about everybody. Every single person is precious in the sight of God. And, the, and we helps us not judge people based on what they have to offer success-wise. And it's also very helpful for how we treat the elderly. Because when people get to the point where they don't have everything to offer they did at 45, they're just as important to the body of Christ. It doesn't change. And they're, and they're, they're, they're needed Everybody, no matter how old they get. Yes, brother. Yeah, I love that verse, that even the gates of hell can't prevail against the church. Right. All we got to do is preach the gospel, and hell can't prevail against us. Amen. They can kick us around and smack us around a little bit, but they can't kill us. They can make it harder, but they can't stop it. They can take away our picnics. <laughs> All right. That was fun yesterday. <laughs> yeah, that was a nice picnic. Okay, so now we are... Finishing 24 last week as we go on here. Thank you for your patience. Uh, let me read 23, 24, and we'll get to 25. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing they produce quarrels. 
but the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach patient one wrong. Now, I mentioned last week, speculation can be called a philosophical inquiry. Uh, we can have massively long debates about things that can never be solved on biblical basis. And so I, at one point, uh, speculations, I did a printout of the Greek word. I have too many printouts. I may not have that one at my fingertips. Let me see. Yeah, I do have it. Speculations can mean debate. And it's not that debate is bad. Paul engaged in debate. But one that's based on something that can never be resolved. Okay, as far as truth in the gospel, whatever. Philosophical inquiry or controversies. I would say that would be reason sometimes I'll lay aside something. There's a view for, let me give you an example. There's a very brilliant uh, guy uh, who took up uh, this idea of, uh, how would you say it? I'm going to, I'm not pulling the thing into mind, the name of the guy. It may come to me. But he had this view that supposedly solved free will versus election. And it's very, very uh, sophisticated, very brilliant guy. And in the view, and I read the most wise God is the name of his book. Do you know the name of the, anyhow, I read the book. It's brilliant. He has all of this material. And basically what it is, is he says, because God has infinite knowledge and he knows the end and beginning, including the future, um, it's sort of like the ideal time version. In other words, God looked at, into the future before he created anything and looked at all possible worlds that could ever exist. The infinite God thing is thinking of possible worlds. And then when he does, decides to create one, he had already run the outcome of every last one that could have been created. We do this one, it comes out this way, we do this one. Like the most giant supercomputer ever, ever. And, and, and then he ran the, he actually brings into existence the world in which the most free will exists and the most people are saved. Uh, William Lane Craig. See, when you're old, there's more cards in the Rolodex and they flip slowly. <laughs> I'll do that with a sports guy or whatever. Who is that? Who is that? All right, William Lane Craig. So possible worlds. And it's, it is a philosophical view. And, and there's something called a cosmological argument based on it. But th here's the problem with it. It's pure speculation. The Bible doesn't tell us that's how God does things. And so I talked to some, a professor that I know that believed that one. And I've heard William Lane Craig debate an atheist. The atheist was a bumbling. He wasn't very good. He was overmatched. But, so I'm going to decide what to believe. Am I going to choose to believe best possible world scenario based on William Lane Craig's philosophy or go with the data from Scripture itself about God? Oh, his book was called Only Wise God. Here's what God says about himself, what he did, why he did it, and how it comes out. It doesn't matter to me that people are offended by the way God runs his universe. Nor do I feel the need to adopt a philosophy to make people feel better about how God runs his universe. Because I will be judged as a teacher based on how faithfully I taught what God said about himself. I don't believe there's a reward in heaven for being a more brilliant philosopher than everybody else. Not that I could be. And so I, don't, I can't accept William Lane Craig's view. I, I like the guy. I think he's brilliant, good apologist. But it's not what the Bible says about God, that he's like the biggest supercomputer there could ever be, and then this is the best possible world. No, it's the one he chose to create in order to maximize glory, glory to himself. Amen. And we see that as the angels are praising him. And what we think would glorify God isn't important. It's what God knows will glorify him. So let's embrace 
to the glory of God as our view. Okay, so a foolish speculation, again, I'm not going to have a class with William Lane Craig's view in here for, because that would be foolish speculation. Not that he's foolish. He's smarter than I'll ever be, but it's not Bible. It's just speculation. They produce quarrels. So let's debate. Best possible world, this one, that one. No. Always ground everything in exegesis and biblical truth, not speculation. Speculation is not helpful to growing the church, the body of Christ, either spiritually or as far as evangelism of new people coming to Christ. Yes, brother. Yeah, uh, I'm going to make a statement, and I think you and I have talked about this. I think that we, I think we would, all of us agree on this. Every we've, when we do evangelism, we run into all kinds of, you know, different, mm -hmm. different ignorant speculations, and including people that adhere to what they call old religion. You know, some of the pagan religions, and. See, everything that is not in the Bible is a speculation. It's all man-created. The Bible is the only—this is where we got to defend the Bible. And the Bible is the only written source we have of God's truth in the world. Now, pagans will say, oh, no, we got these other things, uh, the, the Epic of Gilgamesh or whatever. I don't remember what yeah, some of, and, and, and we talked to uh, some guy that had a, a huge belief in Nordic pagan gods, and he was defending that. And— those are all speculations. There are no authenticated prophecies that were made in all of it. So I think we need to be able to defend the Bible and also... I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I totally agree. And the Bible is objectively true. We're not asking anybody to suspend their questions and uncritically accept whatever we say. We believe the evidence will eventually, as it already has been doing... Every time they dig in Turkey somewhere, another liberal theory goes down the drain because they're finding objective reason to believe what happened in the Bible really did happen. So I believe that's a valid thing, implication from this verse, is that speculations are not going to be helpful to the body of Christ. We may want to sit in our back... Uh, yard picnic and speculate about whether the Packers or the Vikings are better. But uh, that's not uh, the faith once for all handed down to the saints isn't hanging in the balance. Probably a good thing. <laughs> They're both lousy. Okay, well, however, however that goes. It's not, it, it's just about what the church is about. What's the church? And then it says they produce quarrels. Quarrels can't be resolved. Objective truth based on evidence can. It can be demonstrated true or false. And that's where we should be pointing our uh, inquiries into, can this be demonstrated to be true? And Eric and I are very clear that our, the court of demonstration is Scripture alone. And so if whoever has the best reading that... that makes the most sense of the most verses and can be borne out consistently through the scriptures, that's the one we need to adopt, not the one that makes us happy because we used to hang our hat on a, on a certain argument. We've got to have a love for the truth. And then uh, quarrelsome, quarrelsome. And I looked that one up. It means to engage in heated dispute without, without use of weapons. Fight, quarrel, dispute. In other words, you're not shooting somebody, but you're having a verbal uh, battle. Verbal, verbal battle. So um, that can consume congregations, and sometimes they're about things that could never be resolved. And the bigger the institution gets, the longer the institution existed, the more futile and worthless the quarrels become because they're usually over things that have nothing to do with the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And sometimes they become necessary because the institution has to keep existing 
in the minds of the people running it. And I thank God in his providence that Eric and I met as we did when we did. Because that stands in the background of my thinking always. When I saw an institution preserve itself by ultimately putting an atheist in charge of the theology department. They didn't know he was an atheist. That's what he came out as not too long later. But the institution flourished under the false teaching that languished under solid true teaching. And that is but judging based on millions of dollars, either in the red or in the black. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Bob, it's interesting you mentioned speculations and then what happened at Bethel. The man that Bob is talking about that was in charge of our systematic theology was named Leron Schultz. And he engaged, in, so he's your systematic theology professor. He's the one who's supposed to teach you systematically what the scriptures teach. So we never were allowed to use our Bible. We had his textbook, and it was purely based on speculations. I don't remember any biblical argument in any of his material. In fact, let me just give you an example. He was what's called a monist, so he didn't believe in separation of body and soul at death. Well, he never got into the relevant biblical data like 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. What he did instead was he talked about a man named Phineas Gage who was in a dynamite explosion, and he used this man's altered personality after a shrapnel injury as evidence that you couldn't have separation of body and soul. It made no sense. And so it's funny you say this, Bob. You're kind of putting it together. What, looking back now, yeah. it was pure speculation. There yeah. wasn't any exegesis, and that's what angered me. I wanted to know what the scriptures were saying, and that's they, the final straw. They and that's didn't how care. They, they yeah. did, I heard the first chapel service that Ron Schultz ever taught. I only had it for logic, so it wasn't possible. Logic is the relationship between things. The Bible's logical. So we were looking at valid, invalid arguments, which Eric and I have talked about. So then he taught in chapel. And now anybody, none of us, could understand what he was teaching. He was putting stuff up there on, uh, I think they had uh, projected slides. slides. Yeah. Okay, it wasn't a computer. Maybe it was on a computer. But his logic was laid out, and I recognized it because I took differential calculus at Iowa State. It was differential calculus only over theological ideas. And it had a range. It had this big sigma, and then from here to here, that's what it does, from this range to this range. Then other things in brackets, you got to solve inside the brackets to get... That's what he had, and he never told anybody in that chapel what any of those symbols stood for. So we're sitting there, and he's going, now this, from this range to this, this within this, this goes to here, and he's down at the end. He comes to some kind of conclusion. And not a, now I don't think a professor or a student knew what he's talking about, Leron Schultz. And I thought, what did he do all that for? What did he tell us? To show us, I believe, here's the evidence, I don't know the heart. I'm brilliant, you're all stupid. That's what everybody got out of it. He's brilliant, we're stupid, so we should just listen to him. But we didn't learn anything to listen to him because he didn't tell us what his symbols meant. Isn't there an informal logical fallacy? I think it's called prestige jargon, where you don't address the issues. You just dress up your ignorance using high and lofty language. Probably. So that's kind of what he did. If is that is an informal, well, informal can be about anything that is a fallacy. Yeah. 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 Hey, why don't you be impressed with me because you're all too stupid to understand what I just said. I hated that at Iowa State when a math professor says, now it's intuitively obvious. We're going, by whose intuition? How'd you get there? They don't want to explain how he went from here to there. He just said it's intuitively obvious. I hate it when they said that. That means my grade just now went down. Uh, we want to not be like that. What we want is, notice this, be kind to all using jargon without giving a definition that's meaningful to the hearers is not kind. It's not helpful. It's not anything. It's, it's not even being able to teach. That, that Leron Schultz didn't teach us anything in that chapel because I doubt there's one person other than me that had ever taken differential calculus 
And it didn't apply to philosophy anyhow. It applies to subatomic particles or whatever you're trying to understand. So the point is, the servant of the Lord that's to be gentle and patient has the goal of feeding the flock pure spiritual food that will cause every member of the flock, at least at some level, not everybody's been a Christian for as long or has the same abilities or whatever, but that we can grow in the grace and knowledge of God, that we can learn about our mutual salvation, that we can learn about uh, escaping the wrath of God and living with the fruits of the Spirit and what's important to God and the basis of the Christian life and why we live the way we do by God's grace and so on. And that's always causing growth. That's always going to be beneficial to every Christian, but it'll become meaningless to the religious consumer who's not converted. That's my whole point. That's my whole point. So the great, big, huge mega churches with their multi-million dollar budgets don't have enough of using biblical terms, God's elect within them to sustain the infrastructure. And that's why I get calls, and I've got one recently. Well, our church is doing this, this, and this. And, and it's not for me to say how somebody runs their, their organization, but at the very least, those who love Jesus and are born of God need a little Bible study somewhere where somebody feeds them the truth, even if that's not what's generally going on. Uh, dear ones, the only way to solve this is to define the church biblically. And the only way to try to, I got to get back to Paul's question from last week. Great question you asked. He looks at me like I did. Uh, you did. Paul says, you keep talking about church, and it's, isn't that what you asked? Yeah. And the word doesn't, what does it actually mean? That's the heart of the matter. That's why we're going over this so carefully. Ecclesia, church, is a, is a word upon which more equivocation has been put than about any word that we deal with. You say the word church, it could mean so many things to so many people, it's almost meaningless. Uh, what do you say when you, well, I saw that church over there. Look at that. The little country church on the knoll. I have a song about it or whatever. You're only talking about a building. There's an assumption that maybe Christians go there, but they maybe don't. So the first thing we think of is a building. And then we think of organizations. And so you have the Mormon church. But the Mormon church isn't Christian. Okay, and then you have the really big institution, Catholic Church. Billions, evidently, go there. But how many, how much of that is actually defined on these simple terms we have here? And there are people in the Roman system who do study the Bible. They're rare, but they're there, and who can answer these kind of questions. We. Ankerberg had some guy on that could do that. Okay? But it's the rarest of the rare. The, the Catholic that really knows the Bible and can answer questions and try to make it fit into what they're doing. But for the most part, it's like, why ask that? Why ask that? Why ask that? I've had people tell me that when they married and they was done in the Catholic Church. The priest... Well, what about this or what about that? They had no clue. No, why would, I, why would I know the Bible? Why are you asking me about that? Well, so the point is the term church is subject to constant equivocation. And equivocation isn't communication. Talking about two different things. And then you, you, you don't get anywhere. So that's why... I'm doing this excursus from Acts into Timothy to do that definition so that as we discuss, we're not equivocating. And that's why this, this is where we start right here. Goal of our instructions, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith, 
righteous faith, love, peace, those who call the Lord with a pure heart. That's the goal. And that's only going to be true for those attached to the head, Jesus Christ, through a vital life of being born of God, fruits of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, uh, the gospel, love the Lord, um, pray to the Lord and know that he cares for us and that we're wanting to refuse the ignorant and full speculations. We want to hear the truth and it will cause us to grow. And that doesn't guarantee that there aren't people who aren't Christian who maybe think they are. That's always the case. But it, shouldn't, it should be the exception, not the rule. We'll see that when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. If someone on the Lord comes in and you all prophesy, it falls, say, God must be among you. That would be an ideal outcome. Yes, Luann. You could bring the mic to Luann. I think this is so interesting because, you know, Scripture is, you know, people will use language like it's important, but they don't really take it as God's written word to us, how he communicates with us today. Mm -hmm. And Eric, throughout the time, has really given us a good background on postmodernism and how, you know, we don't have access to the truth. And Christians today are inundated through our Marxist news all the time, how we can't have access to the truth. And so we need wizards to explain it all for us. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at um, oh, things like uh, climate change, you know, all of that is on speculation. And we look at, um, you know, like the who right now is putting in regulations on potential pandemics. Everything is about speculation. And we're faced with that every single day. And Christians, not only in the church, but we can use these things outside the church to help train us how to recognize the lies that are constantly, constantly being you know, put on us. And the other thing is when we talk about biblical hermeneutics, context is king. And so we have to take every piece of information that we get and put it in its proper context, you know, whether it's biblical or secular, so that we can come to that truth and we don't have to argue and we can teach in kindness if we understand the tools that are being used against us. Yes, that's uh, what I wrote about emergent. Thank you, Luann. One of the things that they do to get us to believe the, pro they, they basically have believe in the process Okay, this panentheism is the groundwork under that. Okay, God is in everything, and because God is infused into the everything, everything is evolving to something better. So you either get with the process that's going to make everything evolve into the kingdom of God on earth now without future judgment, or you're a hindrance to it. Okay. That's what emergence about. But what we're saying is that this whole, the whole, the process is a rebellious world heading to hell. They deny that. And that the, the world has fallen. The problems in the world we see are because of the fall of the sin of the human race. And that redemption and atonement is what changes our status from being under darkness to light and that the world isn't headed toward paradise it's headed toward judgment and that's what I wrote about so yeah you're right the, the emergent thing is you don't hear as much about it lately but it's all grounded in panentheism God is in everything and so God and nature are somehow intertwined and he's part of the process and trying to get it to evolve in the right direction but he needs our cooperation according to their theory. And yes, Brian, I'll get try to back in. Uh, Jude is these things have actually entered into the church in the book of Jude. And uh, he emphasizes using to the quarreling point, he uses mercy, show mercy on these people as God showed mercy on you. And uh, there were scoffers 
people with different ideas entering into the into church. Wilderness, yeah. And uh, so you see where this, to Timothy, this is kind of uh, the warning, this is going to happen, and now in Jude, it's happening, and this is, uh, Jude just says basically yeah, the same thing. It's a little difficult sometimes to sort out, but the thing that helps me, if I can share with you, and you can decide it's helpful or not, is that there'll be people, some of whom may be a Peter when he was denying the Lord, and the other may be a Judas. And before the outcome is obvious, you don't know which is which. Who does he mean? One of us is betray the betrayer. Who's the betrayer? And there's foreshadowing in the Gospels because Jesus mentioned one of you has a devil. And then later he, he said to Peter, you're going to, before the, the morning, the, um, the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He didn't believe he would. What, how do you know the difference? Well, Judas' outcome was bad, and Peter repented and continued on, became an apostle. Does that make sense? So in the meantime, the reason for teaching is so that that will happen, so that the, the Peters will, who had, all of us who stumbled and fallen or in a bad place, get pulled out of that and put back on the rock, on this rock I'll build my church, not a person, but the confession of Christ and his teachings, and some will just leave and say, I don't like this. I'd rather fight for, uh, fly, fight against global warming and heaven coming to earth. And they'll go, they won't have far to go to find somebody to join. They're everywhere. Uh, so, so be it. So speculation, able to, kind, kind, <coughs> able to teach, patient when wrong. That's, a, that's so critical, and it's hard. To, we need to be self-aware of not being that way. I, uh, as a young man, very rare was I patient when wrong. I don't know if I am now, ever. <laughs> but it's a very hard one. But I'll tell you, I can tell you what helps. I know you me evaluating whether I've got victory on this. I hope so, in some regard. Here's how you evaluate it. Do I take everything as a personal affront to me, like I was diminished because somebody else was wrong about something? Or do I see the bigger picture of me being you uh, learning how to be this way by the trials that God allows, as James talks about, and seeing the need for mercy for others because I tend to overlook when I'm nasty to somebody and wronging them. And it's, it's, it's a work of grace that it goes on through the word of God, through life, through the sanctification process. And we either get bitter or better, if we use a little slogan, and better is the way we want to go. The Lord's servant is doulos, doulos, which means a bond servant or a slave. Paul calls himself a doulos. Uh, in Titus 1.1, bondservant of God. And so uh, let me just cite a, a chapter after this. 1 Timothy 3.2 says, An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, able to teach. So no one is perfect in all of those things, but this is what it's supposed to look like, and so means that we should use of evaluating ourselves. Furthermore, we want to state that the qualities of the overseer are not unique to overseers. They're virtues that every Christian wants to have. Do you understand that uh, this isn't like some elite class who has something nobody else has. But overseers are simply expected to be living the Christian virtues that God has for all Christians. Now, um, 
able to teach is a great, unique word there. Let me cite uh, Yarborough's great commentary. Oh, we're going to go to verse 25 here. Good. We need to do that. With gentleness correcting those in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Now, this, this is so rich. This is so important. Okay? This changed my life. Took a lot of years for the fruit of it to come forth, but in the early 80s, this changed the entire direction of what I thought ministry was. 24 to 26, these verses right here. Because this is exactly what we weren't doing. Now, um, I was going to quote Yarborough. He says, in speaking of opponents being instructed, in verse 25, Paul uses a form of paiduo, paiduo, educate, instruct, that resonates with a cognate, negated word translated stupid. Apaidutus. Um, uneducated, uninstructed. That was used earlier. In describing arguments that Timothy needs to avoid, verse 23. So ver- verse 23 says, avoid stupid arguments, apaidutus, and use paiduo, um, educate patiently as one would a child. Void the stupid ones that are childish, even though they're coming from a 50-year-old or whatever. Or however age. Does that make sense? So there's a play on words that doesn't come out in English, but it's in the Greek. It has to do with child teaching. So we're all in sense to children being educated by God so that we can uh, grow in the grace and knowledge of God. And then he goes on and describing arguments that Timothy needs to avoid in verse 23. An antidote, says Yarborough, to wrong-headed disputes can be proactive instruction that anticipates and heads off misunderstanding or distortion of Christian teaching. He said pastors who neglect their calling to ambitious study and effective instruction may be creating their own enemies by their malpractice. That, That was stunning when I read it. Okay. Neglect ambitious study and effective instruction creates the problem. And when I I was reading that, I read this in the middle of getting ready to write this review of the book called Discipling the Nations, or Discipling Nations, based on Matthew 28. And I thought, I don't know how the guy who wrote the book was ever instructed, but whoever did it did a horrible job. Because Matthew 28 says, go make disciples of the nations, he takes to mean geopolitical entities and cultures that will become more Christianized so you have better living. And never, ever does the basic teaching. There's the malpractice. I call that malpractice. Why? Because Matthew Matthew 28 is the end of a big, long book with 28 chapters. And what does Matthew call a disciple in Matthew? That's the most basic question any child would ask. Oh, I'm supposed to make disciples. What's a disciple, Daddy? <laughs> Don't ask that question. A disciple has a very sophisticated Christian worldview, whether they're a Christian or not. I don't think that's what Matthew meant. Go ahead, Eric. You're teaching Matthew. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm so glad you're doing this, Bob, refuting what that Miller is doing in Matthew 28. Think about a disciple throughout Matthew is one that doesn't care about status. Contrast that with a geopolitical entity. By definition, the geopolitical... Take a mayor. By definition, mayor has status. Um, you have to honor the king, pay taxes and honor to those whom they're due. So by definition, the geopolitical entity has status that the Christian doesn't. So if the disciple doesn't worry about status and the politician does, the disciple 
therefore can't be the geopolitical entity. They're completely opposite. Yeah, by it's definition. It's kind of hard to baptize them, too. Exactly. How do you baptize a geopolitical entity? Yeah, right? I wrote an essay about that one of the first years of seminary, and uh, I got a good grade on it, but I thought, well, this is obvious. I didn't do anything extraordinary. I just look at the text. How can you be in charge of this massive organization or whatever aspect of it, sell all of these books, motivate all these millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people to go out on a mission field, and you can't even tell us what a disciple is. Or I should say this, don't, you don't try. Don't even try, nor even ask the question, what did Matthew mean by a disciple? Go by authorial intent. Well, if you just go through, if you just think about it, what do we learn about disciples in Matthew? They build on the rock. What, it is, what is it to build on the rock? To build on the foundation of Christ and his teachings. Whosoever teaches people to do whatsoever I command you will be the greatest. I think it's in Matthew 12. The one that does will be the least. Doesn't is the least. And there's no doubt that the teachings are the teachings of Jesus that are under consideration. And you have the narrow gate and you have all of these teachings about the, the living in light of future judgment. That's not even in the book. It doesn't even talk about future judgment. It's about the culture progressing to be a ni nicer culture for all people. And in that case, the Roman Empire is given as a great uh, illustration of how you disciple the Roman Empire. Yeah, when it became Christianized, I mean, after Constantine on, that's given as a positive example. So there's the point on Yarborough, and then I read Yarborough. The, the mistakes are so obvious, they're so childlike, and they're so fundamental that anybody could see it was a mistake, and the most brilliant people publishing the books don't even get it. How could you have these childish speculations and not even know that's what you're doing? And it blows me away. It just, I, I, don't, I don't get it. The most simple question would blow it up. And they don't see it. They don't see it. And what good would it do? Well, just think of the parable. What is the profit of man? He gains the whole world and loses his soul. So let's say I have a Christian worldview, and they, the basic outline they have right. God created the whole world out of nothing. Yes. Um, the, the sort of free society where capitalism flourishes is, is a prosperous society compared to animism or communism or um, uh, secular materialism and all those kind of arguments. I agree. And there's reasons why it works out that way. But that's not what it is to make a disciple. And then it, gives, it just gives confusion to so many people because they don't know what, what it means to make a disciple. So, dear ones, what's our lesson? Get the fundamental definitions correct on the front end. And thank you, Paul. What's a church? Perfect question. It's equivocated on. It's an aggregation of people to, gathering together in the name of the Lord attached to the head. And the, the leadership of it is elders and deacons, and everybody's important. And it's grounded in the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. And it's the called out with ecclesia. So then you have to know what are you called out from, what, is, what are you called to, and what's your association together. It could be in ancient Greek. Or it could be a town meeting. But what does it mean here? Well, the church means called out by, from the dark world of sin and Satan into relationship with God and with one another under Christ with his word being binding and authoritative. That's the church. And the church doesn't need a building. It may have one, but it doesn't need one. It could be in a home. It could be hidden somewhere because of persecution. It could be a lot of different ways, but it's people. It's not bricks and mortar. It's a simple answer. The theologians know the answers, I, I promise you. When you study systematic theology, they have good definitions of the church. 
and you have to be able to cite them on a test. But in practice, they're not used. The visible church, the invisible church, the church militant, the church universal and triumphant, the church militant, there's all, they're all good terms. But when it comes to practice, forget it. Biggest church in Minnesota, secret church. And they need a building. It has to be bigger, bigger building. Well, that's fine if they get their bigger building. But the church isn't, that's not what church is. It needs to be people that repented, they love the truth, they want to hunger for the word of God, for the fruits of the spirit to be manifest, for, for love for Christ and for one another, to nurture, be nurtured in the faith, avoiding speculations, and you know, with gentleness, correcting those in opposition. Now, to have people in opposition, there has to be something uh, definable to be opposed. If you don't make any claims, truth claims, there's nothing for anybody to oppose. And so you have this amorphous glob of nothingness, religion that feels good. What's there to oppose? We believe the good Lord loves everybody and everything's wonderful and we just need to be nice. I mentioned this last week. Well, what are you going to oppose? I'm against being nice. <laughs> Strictly against it. Mean and nasty. That's what we need. Well, you can't oppose that. So the basic idea is, oh, it's all good. I can see I grew up in that kind of thing. Oh, it's all wonderful. The good Lord is loving. And then when you ask, well, the Bible talks about hell. Is there hell? No, that's just their way of describing things back in their day. But we know better now. Well, there, were there any miracles? No, they're inspiring stories to tell us to do our best. The nice, the nice religion that doesn't up any, upset anybody's apple cart. Well, when you make truth claims grounded in scripture that are fundamentally opposed to the way the world thinks and lives and teaches, there's always going to be opposition. And you're not going to be popular with the masses. But those in the church who end up in opposition, we need to, be, first of all, make sure we're right. We may not be. We've got to allow anybody to judge prophecy, which is claiming to speak for God, valid implication, application of Scripture. It can be judged. That's why we have this meeting with the mics. You can judge it. Is that correct? Is that really what it says? And if those arise who are so opposed that they won't even accept the basic claims of the gospel and obvious truth from the Bible, then they put, they put themselves in opposition. Even when that happens, the servant of the Lord, the doulos, the bondservant, must with gentleness patiently correct because here's why. You don't punch him in the nose, you don't scream at him and throw him out the first time you got to have patience two or three witnesses in a process but you just gently correct why because God may grant repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth isn't that what we're looking for repentance that would lead to the knowledge of the truth may God help us and may God give us patience so God, God grants repentance Now, how do we know that? Well, there's a bunch of verses about it. Um, we saw that in Acts, Acts 5.31. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior, Acts 5.31, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance in Acts and Luke Acts is attached also to forgiveness of sins. God forgives our sins, not what we think is right. Does that make sense if we're wrong? Paul thought when he was attacking Christians at the scene of 
after the scene of St Stephen's martyrdom, he thought he was protecting the integrity of Israel from these uh, evil, insidious Christians, but he found out he was wrong and that Christ was who he claimed to be. Uh, so then um, you see this in Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard this, after God saved some Gentiles, after they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God granted repentance to Gentiles, not just Jews. So we don't know to whom God will grant repentance. And so rather than look at somebody as an enemy to, to be defeated right now as fast as possible, I appreciate the evangelists and the updates we get from the evangelists. They listen to people's ideas and with hopes to be able to share the truth, hoping that some will be granted repentance. And that repentance leads to the knowledge of the truth. So the reason is this hope for the granting of repentance. The one who is not that not that it's good, not good to have rhetorical skill and apologetics, and those things are good to have. But the repentance comes not because the person with the best ability to argue took charge, but because God granted it. That being said, we still want to give the best evidence we can, because that's the material he works with. Um, you never know. Uh, we were talking about this the other day. Some of you remember Bert Sisler. He came to the Lord. It was a friend of, until he died, a friend of mine. But he came to church in 1983. We had a little class, Florida's, and I was teaching about the new age and why we don't believe in the new age, but we believe in the scripture. And somebody brought him in, and Bert was in a Unitarian Universal Church and was into new age. And had just been forced to retire at age 60 as a pilot from Northwest Orient Airlines. And he came in, listened to my class, politely had coffee, went home. Oh, well, it's nice to have a visitor. A week later, he comes back, and he said, I want to talk to you. And I said, about what? He said, well, I went home and thought about everything you said. I decided you're right. I want to be a Christian. Now, that's kind of an unusual conversion. <laughs> he went home, thought, oh, yeah, I think that's right. He came back. And Bert was with, helped for year after year. Bert was down there helping and caring and serving. So we want to give the good answers, but it's God... It was God's grace that Bert came, came back and said, yeah, I think you're right. And he left the Unitarian Universal and went to the gospel. It's unusual. I can't say I've seen that very often. Yes, uh, Brother Eric. I think he was pierced by the Holy Spirit, which is the Word of God. Mm-hmm. I just had to say that. That's the Word of God. Obviously, absolutely. You know, because we, when we do evangelism, you know, I've been guilty many times of just trying to reason with people, you know. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, and that's what we got to use, and we all need to be better at it. So I just wanted to get that in. Thank all you. All right, well, let's go to the next slide as a preview for a few weeks from now when I teach on this again. Here's the, here's the outcome that we're looking for and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will and I will tell you right now that being held captive by the devil to do his will looks a lot of different ways it may look respectable it may look religious it may look mean and nasty and foreboding. It may look a lot. It may look like a guy who just retired as a pilot, who wondered what to do with his life now that he's uh, doesn't have a job. That was Bert came back, and he just he came to his senses. Unitarianism is not biblical. 
you know, everything's going to go to heaven, everything's good. So escape is, comes through repentance. Repentance granted by God through means of patient correction through the word of God. Repentance leads to the knowledge of the truth, which sets people free. Next time we'll cover that in some detail. If you want to, uh, it's a few weeks down the line, so probably wait till then. But think about reading the section in John 8 where Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders when he told them, if you continue my word, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then they said, well, we're not in bondage. Sorry, we don't need it. Read John 8 and you'll see one of the most intriguing confrontations about that. And in the end, um, talking about the devil here, seems kind of extreme, but that's it may look nice, but the devil's in charge of the kingdom of darkness as far as God allows him to be. And you got to get out of that whole kingdom. You don't just take a couple steps to be nicer. You exit and come in under Christ. So let's close the prayer. Thank you, Lord. Pray for Pastor Eric as he teaches us today from Matthew. Thank you for uh, the fellowship we have with you and with one another. May we have wisdom. May we have grace to be patient and kind when we live in such hostility all around us to things that we hold dear. Thank you, Lord. And uh, we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.